Good evening, viewers. The views, information, or opinions expressed on Myths and Misconceptions podcast are solely those of the individual guests and may not be representative of the show as a whole. Myths and Misconceptions is intended for mature audiences and will discuss topics such as murder, rape, torture, and suicide. If you or anyone you know are having suicidal ideations, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-237-8255. Someone will be there to talk to you. You are not alone. Now, on to today's episode. Viewer discretion is advised. Imagine driving into a small town surrounded by rolling hills, rock walls, and houses with thatched roofs, and you might think you walked into a village from the 16th century, and you wouldn't be wrong. The tiny village of Lower Quinton in Warwickshire, England, has a population of around a thousand people and looks like something straight out of a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. However, this town was subject to one of the grisliest murders that has yet to be solved. Many times, when a murder becomes a cold case, it's usually because the investigators can't find any leads, they don't have any witnesses, or they can't establish a motive. It's not normally because of superstition or claims of the occult, especially for a hotshot Scotland Yard detective that is used to solving cases in the seedy underbelly of London. In today's episode, we're joined by Myth and Misconception's very own Brandy. Hello. And together, we're going to learn about the murder of Charles Walton and how a veteran Scotland Yard detective was stumped by a town drenched in folklore and occult superstition. Are you excited? Tell me more. All right. Brandy, on Valentine's Day in 1945, Edith Elizabeth Walton Harry Beasley and Alfred Potter discovered the body of Edith's 74-year-old uncle, Charles Walton, laying in a ditch behind Alfred Potter's pasture hedges. Charles Walton was born on the 12th of May in 1870 in the Coswalds, in the village of Lower Quinton, where he spent his entire life. He was also extremely knowledgeable about the traditional ways and about the small-town lore associated with with the Coswalds. He lived with his niece, Edith, which of whom Charles adopted when she was three years old. Um, Edith's mother died and her father was still alive, but he didn't really want anything to do with her. So she would continue living with Charles and would take care of him after his wife died. And Charles was pretty old, but despite his seniority and arthritis, uh, he made his living by doing light farm work around the village. On the day of his death, he was going to Alfred Potter's farm to trim some hedges. He left with a slash hook, a pitchfork, and a lunch made by Edith, uh, and left sometime around 8 a.m. Before he left, he also picked up his pocket watch and some walking sticks uh, and started making his way through the church courtyard and off toward the Potter's farm. Now, Alfred Potter's farm was in the Furs on Meon Hill, which was a, a little bit away from Charles. This is a place that has been shrouded in folklore and supernatural activity uh, for millennia. Meon Hill is old, like so old that archaeologists have found Iron Age structures on it. It's rumored actually to be the home of the devil himself, 
alongside reports of ghosts, hellhounds, and witches. Ba basically, this is a place you don't go to unless you absolutely have to. Charles was always home by 4 p.m. every day. However, when Edith returned home on Valentine's Day around 6 p.m., she couldn't find her uncle anywhere. So she was super worried because, he, like, he never was home after 4 p.m. He was always home at 4. And so she immediately left to go ask her neighbor for help, uh, Harry Beasley, to go help her find her uncle. And then after searching the town, they eventually made their way to Alfred Potter's farm on Meon Hill, since it was the last place that he was seen. Unfortunately, the group found Charles behind some hedges, laying on his left side in a ditch. This is such a supernatural place, and why farm? That was just where his family farm had been for for years, so I'm not exactly sure why they chose that place to start farming, but um, they, they definitely had had it for a while. They found Charles bloody and mangled. His throat was slashed multiple times to the point of near decapitation. And the worst part was, was that the slash hook was still hanging in his neck and a crucifix had been carved into his chest and his blood just saturated the ground. But the most disturbing part was that Charles had been impaled in the face by his own pitchfork, pinning him to the ground. Edith had to be escorted home by Harry because the scene was so horrific and that just left Alfred Potter alone with the body. When the police arrived, an officer by the name of Lamancy noticed that Charles' clothing had been unbuttoned and disheveled, and that Charles was missing his pocket watch. So, most of the local police just assumed that this was um, a robbery gone wrong, until Lamancy found Charles' walking sticks. They were sticking out of the ground a little way from the body, and they were covered in hair and blood. And then once they examined his hands, they noticed that there were a lot of defensive marks. Was this a crime of passion? You know, it kind of sounds like it. it. You don't, that's pretty up close and personal, uh, everything that happened to him. So usually in a crime of passion, it is bloody. <laughs> um, and, and so upon a further examination of the skull, they realized that his head had been beaten until it cracked open. That's a bunch of money. <laughs> so let's just take a second. This 75 or 74 year old man had been beaten until his skull cracked open. He had been almost decapitated, had a crucifix carved into his chest, and he has a pitchfork where his eyes used to be. I, I would say maybe he owed something a little bit more than just some lunch money. Since the only person at the scene was Potter, uh, naturally the police decided to question him. Uh, Lamancy asked Potter when the last time he had seen Charles was, and he replied that it was around 12 or 12.15, and that he had seen Charles in the field, but honestly couldn't be sure that it was Charles. Then the officer noticed that Potter became more and more uncomfortable while he was being questioned, uh, and then Partway through the interview process, um, Potter's body language and facial expressions begin to change rapidly, and he tells Officer Lamancy that he's getting cold and hungry. 
and that he needs to go eat dinner. And the officer allows him to leave, but takes note that his behavior is odd. Officer Lamancy is like, you're a farmer. You're used to going out into the cold all the time to go, you know, tend to livestock or or what have you. And so after the body was checked by the coroner, um, the coroner had placed the time of death between 1 and 2 p.m. With the local police stumped, we now see Detective Inspector Toombs come in to this story. Toombs re-interviews many of the witnesses, starting with Alfred Potter. Potter explains to Toombs the story of hiring Charles and what he did around the farm. He told the detective that he was at the College Arms, which is a local pub in Lower Quinton, until about noon. Then he walked back to the farm where he saw Charles, and he figured the old man would be done uh, trimming the hedges in about 30 minutes. The Quinton Police Department assumed that this would be an open and shut case, since it happened in broad daylight and in a town with less than a thousand people. But oddly enough, they, they quickly ran out of leads. Well, even if it's a small community, if the town is suspicious and there's a lot of folklore, perhaps they can't say anything. Maybe, maybe they're thinking this could be done internally or something. Maybe there's something else. So the local PD, they're getting nowhere. So this is when the Quinton Police Department decide to call for backup. And they call Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard sends over their best detectives, Robert Fabian and Albert Webb. These detectives solved crimes in the criminal underground of London. They busted brothels, gambling dens, and they stopped bank robbers and jewel thieves. They have seen everything. And the pair arrived in Lower Quinton on February 16th and immediately got to work on the case. These guys are hot shots. Like, if anybody can solve the case, it's definitely them. So the local police quickly get them up to speed and mention that there's an Italian POW camp not too far from the crime scene. These POWs could roam freely around the local area, which may seem strange to us now, but was actually common practice at the time. None of the POWs were able to speak English, so Fabian and Webb had to find an Italian-speaking detective, and they did. They found a Detective Saunders. Together, the trio interviewed over a thousand POWs and found that a small group of them went to see a film and another small group went to see a play in the town on the night of the murder. None of them had seen or heard anything, and the te detectives concluded that the POWs had nothing to do with this crime. However, there was an aerial photo taken at the time around the murder showing an Italian POW hiding in the bushes drenched in blood. Who's taking this aerial photo? Probably the British Royal Air Force or some. I, I really, I don't know why they're taking pictures of an Italian POW camp. Um, the Google car of the 1950s. <laughs> well, this is the 1940s. Um, so it'd have to be like the Google trolley. After tracking him down and interviewing him, the detectives found that he was just poaching animals and dismissed him as a suspect. 
So after this setback, they turn their attention back to Alfred Potter. Detectives Fabian and Webb interrogated him one more time. This time, however, there were a lot of changes to Potter's story. He explained to Fabian and Webb that he found out that Charles may have been lying to him about the number of hours he worked on the farm and that Potter may have been paying him for hours that he didn't actually work. A little bit of farmer fraud. Ooh, farmer fraud. I like that. He went to the pub, <laughs> leaving at noon, and got home around 12.30. But then he told the detectives that he had never seen Charles in the field because he had a heifer that died in a ditch the day before, and he needed to get it out. Which, maybe that Italian POW was eating that heifer. Detective Fabian told Potter something that hadn't been released yet. That the police had found fingerprints on the slash hook that was lodged in Charles's throat. And they belonged to Potter. How did they get Potter's fingerprints? They, they dusted it for prints. <laughs> I think dusting for prints started late 1800s. Maybe early 1900s. The more you know. Okay. <laughs> this is not an after-school special. That's when Potter's demeanor changed, and he started to get real fidgety. Then he told the detectives, You know, Harry Beasley told me to make sure that Charles was dead. So naturally, I grabbed the slash hook and tried to take it out, but I couldn't, so I just left it there. And then Potter continued to ensure that his alibi was airtight because an employee by the name of Charles Happy Bachelor, helped him pulp some marigolds around the time of the murder. Potter's wife, Lillian Potter, said that he came in, read the newspaper for a couple minutes, ate lunch, and then goes down to tend to some flowers. At this point, Mrs. Potter is whipped into a frenzy. She can't believe that Scotland Yard is accusing her husband of killing this old man, and it has to be one of those fascists from the camp. Calm it down, Lillian. I know, right? Fabian and Webb feel as though they are getting nowhere in the case, and the rest of the village has started to keep quiet about the whole ordeal. No one is willing to talk to the detectives anymore, and they are starting to believe that the entire village just wants them gone, and that they want to just leave the case alone. So, in a letter to his superiors in Scotland Yard, Fabian says that the entire town has some sort of secretive disposition. He even says that there must be some local lore attached to Charles or the village itself, uh, which would explain why he was murdered and why the village wants him to leave. Or, you know, it could be that the devil lives there. So one month into the investigation, the detectives have gotten nowhere and they're, they're going to leave. They're just, they're, Scotland Yard wants them back. So Fabian takes a walk up Meon Hill, and then he he feels like he's being watched. You ever had that happen, where you're just like walking and you feel like the the hairs on the back of your neck just stand up, and you have to quickly look around? Yeah, when I turn off the lights and have to run up the stairs. <laughs> That's because the devil's gonna get your booty. He turns around and sees a large black dog sitting on top of one of the rock walls, just staring at him. They lock eyes, and after what feels like forever, the dog jumps down, runs past him down the hill, and a few minutes later, a boy comes from over the hill, and Fabian asks if he's lost his dog. His dog went down the hill. You could probably catch him if you run. 
Fabian describes the dog to the boy and, and the boy just turns white as a ghost and runs away from him and gives Fabian a very unsettling feeling. Maybe he was a ghost. Hot <gasps> twist. Later that day, Fabian finds the black dog hanging from a tree in the village. That's not I nice. A dog. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this was the 40s, man. Weird stuff went on. After the locals catch wind that the detective has seen that black dog prior to it being killed, they refuse to even look in Fabian's direction. Like he did it? I, well, I don't know. We don't know about Fabian. What, what? So naturally, Fabian takes his tale of the dog and of the village people to police chief Alex Spooner, who hands him a book called Folklore, Old Customs, and superstitions in Shakespeare land, thinking maybe it would help the detective understand the tiny village a little bit better. So Fabian begins to read the book and he's just devouring the information. He becomes fascinated with the lore and starts to realize why the townspeople are acting so secretive and paranoid. This village is one of the most superstitious and occult obsessed areas in all of England. Beliefs in the devil, black magic, and ghosts are still extremely strong in Quentin. Like to this day? To this day. This town has a lot of lore of just witches. There are a lot, and we'll find out in a moment, there are a lot of witch trials. You see, because on top of Meon Hill is this megalithic structure called the Rollwright Stones. The exact purpose and the origin of the stones are a mystery to archaeologists today and were the scene of occult practices and rituals. But the most prolific practices that happened on Meon Hill were the burning of witches from the 1600s all the way up to 1940. In 1622, there was a series of droughts and bad harvests that made resources in the Codswalds extremely limited. Naturally, the people of the time assumed that this was because of witchcraft and found that a woman named Isabel Goad had been talking to toads. Ooh, sounds familiar. Ooh, what's going on? Which she would use to poison the land to make it unsuitable for farming. So she was burned at the stake on Meon Hill for being a witch. Tell me about the toads. The toads? He said she was talking to Toad. Oh, so, yeah, so she would talk to Toads. There was this practice that witches would use in, in that time period. I believe it was called tilling, where they would commune with Toads to essentially till up the land that had already been seeded and poison it so that nothing could grow there. Another prolific case of witchcraft was in 1875 when Anne Tennant was killed by John Haywood because he accused her and 14 other women in that village of being witches. He beat Anne Tennant and then slashed her neck to near decapitation with a slash hook. Then he carved a cross into her chest and pinned her to the ground with a pitchfork. He accused her of using frogs to make the land unsuitable for farming. Oh, I'm just thinking. 
for all women. Yes, there were there are a lot of women that are accused, but if we remember from the Salem witch trial, there were also men. So I'm sure that the men um, that there were men with or male witches that were also put on trial. But I think history has warped it so that you know women are witches, men aren't witches. You know what I mean? It's kind of a sexist thing, but whatever. While reading the book, Fabian took note of the mention of black dogs. They are said to be an omen of death and a symbol of the devil. One dog, named Black Shuck, walked into a church and killed the priest and the parishioners while they prayed. Many people still to this day see a black dog running down from Meon Hill. This is when Fabian learns that Charles Walton had seen a black dog shortly before his death. So Fabian has this small town folklore running through his head right now. And he has correspondence with Scotland Yard, but he doesn't tell Scotland Yard that his case is similar to a case in 1875. Instead, he focuses solely on Alfred Potter. He eventually found out that Potter would routinely steal money from his employees by forgetting to pay their wages. However, with the willing unwillingness on part of the villagers to talk to him or his partner, they had to leave and go back to London at the end of March. Returning to England, Fabian goes back to the much easier and mundane criminal underground of London. Can you imagine that? It is easier to solve crime in London with hundreds of thousands, I don't know, maybe millions of people at this point in London than it is to solve a case in a town with less than a thousand people in broad daylight. He ended his career and retired in 1949, leaving the Walton case unsolved to this day. Fabian did take one last crack at it a year after the initial investigation, but still couldn't get the villagers to talk. Too terrified that whatever dark magic would take them as well. So, with all of the information that you were just given, do you think that this is a situation in which Charles Walton created the means to his own death? Was it his propensity for talking to animals and his eccentric personality that would ultimately get him killed as a witch? After all, researchers have scoured through his family tree to find that he was actually the great-grandson of Anne Tennant. They both were accused of talking to animals, they both were suspected of ruining farmland, and both were killed the exact same way, all after seeing a black dog of local folklore. Was this a mass conspiracy on the part of the villagers to take care of a witch, or at least a person that they thought was a witch? and a way to keep the devil at bay, essentially giving him his, his daily bread? Or was it a much simpler motive that got Charles Walton killed? And what's the oldest motivation in the book? Money. Money. So did Potter kill Charles because Potter was paying him for time that Charles hadn't worked? So, you know, falsely paying him? Well, if he wasn't paying his employees, though. Or did Charles confront Potter about stealing money from him and the other employees and Potter killed him to keep him quiet and I don't know maybe Potter is this 
big personality in Lower Quentin, so everybody's just afraid of him. And then it seems as though Potter was trying to blame the Italian POWs to keep the police off his trail. They seemed like a pretty good scapegoat. Interestingly enough, a few minutes after the murder of Charles Walton, his pocket watch mysteriously appeared on the front doorstep of Edith's house. So, I'll leave you with a quote from Detective Fabian himself and let you draw your own conclusion. He said that every murder that has ever occurred has been perpetrated by someone the victim knew. Heavy words. I, I mean, if you guys want my opinion, I think it was Potter. I think with all of his mannerisms during the interview process, the fact that the fingerprints were on the slash hook, his story changed three different times. Not like you see in a, in a normal interrogation, but it changed like details. Times changed. There wasn't, he didn't have a overarching story. It went from, yeah, I saw him, but I'm not sure if it was him, to I had to get a dead cow out of a ditch so I didn't see him at all. And then it went to I was at the bar and then I was cutting some flowers. Well, maybe instead of thinking he did it, perhaps there's something to folklore. Because again, if he was the great grandson of Anne Tennant, she died in a similar fashion. They were both known to talk to animals. Yes. Maybe Maybe Potter was actually just the hand that carried out the task, but it was more of a town conspiracy. I like that. The entire town conspired against this person, but Potter was the one who did it. Well, viewers, you've heard our side. What's your side? 